It's Angela Yee, and I'm telling you right now that the Alive Podcast Network app is the best directory of podcasts created for us by us. From relationships to making money moves, there's a show that'll captivate every listener. And for my fellow Black creatives, this is a call to action to take your brand and monetization to the next level. It's for the culture. Join the movement and sign up today. Sign up today to get a six-month subscription for $20. Visit AlivePodcastNetwork.com, coming soon to iOS and Android. Right, so the question is, you can have as many gifts as you are blessed with, the question is, what are you doing with them to empower the next person, right? Um, and I think those gifts become more useful, more effective if if you channel them. I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simons, yeah. I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simons. I have the distinct honor and privilege of having an awesome and phenomenal guest on today's show, How I Discovered My Gift. We have the awesome and honorable P.K. Ukegu. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and then we're going to jump right in. I'm your host, David D. Simons. Welcome to the show. Chike is a Nigerian-American businessman, uh, educator, and entrepreneur. He's the chief executive officer at Startup 52. At 35, Chike became the youngest person in Africa to officially run for the seat of president as the 2019 youngest presidential candidate in Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation and its largest economy. Chike became a Colin Powell Leadership Fellow on Public Policy at 20 years old. He focused his three-year research on youth disconnection, the phenomenon of youth who are out of school and not working. Furthermore, as a Colin Powell fellow, Chike helped develop a third wave of democrat democratization and led a student team that helped achieve ex-UN uh, Secretary General, the late Kofi Annan's papers, among other research areas. By 35, Chike became Nigeria and Africa's Youngest ever presidential candidate, he was also inducted into the UNMIPADS Hall of Fame at 35 as its first and only global young leader. Chike was also named one of the most influential young Nigerians by advanced media. Wow. And that doesn't even, it's not even a half of everything you've done and all that you've done. Welcome to the show, Chike. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, my brother. It's always, uh, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Wow, <clears throat> honored. Yes, so um, on our show, uh, we really focus on helping people understand and discover their gifts. But I want to, I want to just go through the journey, right? You, you, you have a lot you've done in your lifespan. Uh, so just take us through the journey from 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 a young boy in Nigeria to where you are today in New York. Take us. Through. Hmm. I don't remember the last time I did that. I'm gonna try to. Remember as much as I can, but also be as uh, succinct as I can be. Um, so yeah, I was born in Nigeria. <clears throat> I'm the uh, the fourth of six children um, uh, in five countries. Actually, that's the funny thing. So there's six of us, but we're in five countries today. Um, I left I uh, left Nigeria at 19 uh, to come to New York to go to school. Uh, so. 
College of New York. Um, studied biomedical engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, in my sophomore year, I um, had applied to this fellowship, the Colin Powell Fellowship you talked about. Yeah. Um, at the time, didn't know anything about public policies. It was actually um, a, a fellowship for leadership in public policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew I needed the money as an international student. Um, you know, <laughs> everything that was a scholarship, I had to apply for. Um, so, but I got it and um, decided to focus on youth disconnection. So, the way youth disconnection is defined is uh, um, youth between the ages of 16 and about 25 who are out of school and out of work um <clears throat> you know coming from a very family oriented um environment um very educationally driven uh, my mom is an educator my dad is an engineer well as well they're both retired but they're still alive so um and everybody was pushed, right? So there was something my father always told us, right? You are not better than anyone and nobody's better than you. So if you apply yourself to do your best, you should be the best um, that there is, right? Um, and um, and we, we paid, you know, a couple, we paid a price for not being the best in school, you know, growing up. So everybody looked forward to um, the end of school session because you either got paid for doing well as we had to save money or you got spanked for not being the best in class, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so that was the environment I grew up in. So coming to New York, uh, City College of New York is in Harlem um, and seeing young people like myself who were out of school and out of work was um, a little abnormal for me, right? It, that was not what I was used to, right? Everybody's usually, you know, competitive educationally in a good way. Um, so when I decided to focus on youth disconnection, right? It was at a time when I began to understand what blackness meant in the American context, right? I tell people, um, I never knew I was black until I came to America because, you know, you grew up in an environment where everybody looks like you, right? So color was not an issue at all. And then you walk into this new society without daddy or mommy or, you know, any of the coverings that tend to protect us. Um, and you're confronted with this new identity that you're forced to take on. Um, and in the American context, um, contradicts everything you're taught to believe about yourself right um it's it's you know the in the american context blackness is associated with being being subpar at least these were the things that you know i kind of encountered right you expect it to be to be subpar um you're a thug which means your humanity is is weaponized um, you know, there were all of these new realities that as a teenager, I had to deal with. Um, so besides trying to understand this new identity and the clash of realities from where I was coming from and where I'm at now, how do I balance this? How do I define blackness for myself? Um, and then seeing people who looked like me who um, 
at the time with my young understanding had either fallen victim to this blackness or did not have the right environment uh, to experience the sort of I would say nurture and privilege that I felt I had growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I looked at <clears throat> the solutions at the time, it was mostly what I thought were band-aid solutions, right? There were GED programs or there were menial jobs to connect you back into society, but nobody was actually trying to understand the root causes of disconnection and to tackle it from that perspective. Um, I'll come back to the work. Let me just run through the journey. Yes. Um, so anyway, went to uh, City College, studied biomedical engineering, um, minored in musical theater. Many people don't know that. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so I did a bunch of shows, musicals and whatnot. Sing? Um, sorry? Sing. Um, let's not go there. No. <laughs> 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 yeah, so let's just yeah leave that alone. Um, so, so after I graduated, I graduated in 2008, which was literally at the peak of the recession at the time. You know, um, the the first recession in my lifetime. Here we are going through another one. Um, so moved down to Jacksonville for a week or two. Hated the job. I came back to New York. Um, and began teaching math at City College, um, which I ended up doing for seven years. Um, <clears throat> but the um, the benefit to being able to do that was it gave me the room to pursue this other passion that I had, which was this connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 2009, uh, I co-founded a nonprofit with a friend of mine um, called ReLife. It was actually regarding youth life. Um, and our mission was to empower disconnected and art rescued uh, through tech education and entrepreneurship. Um, the, the, the funny thing was, prior to that, had never taken any courses in entrepreneurship or business or anything. We just knew, yeah, we just knew that um, entrepreneurship was extremely important in empowering this, um, I called them invisible community. Um, because these are people who are capable, who are able, um, but were just completely lost to the environment, to the society, and the ability to contribute. Um, so, real life was more of a, a training ground for us in trying to understand even what we were trying to offer other people, or, as well as you know, just trying to empower uh, this population. Um, Ran Relife for about six years, but what we learned from that process was for many of these young people who came through the doors, um, and these were uh, formerly incarcerated, there were homeless youths, there were domestic violence kids, uh, there were high school and college dropouts. Um, it was just a plethora of, you know, um, different people represented. Um, what we learned, because the way the program was designed, they were required to uh, launch a business by the end of the program, <clears throat> which many of them did. Now, what we learned from that experience was, one, this was a very resilient group of people, right? They were very creative, they were very diligent, they were very passionate about the things they cared about. And that drove them to achieve, right? 
two, what many of them needed was just access to opportunities, right? They just needed someone to believe in them, someone to say, I care. And that made a world of difference in their lives. We had a 17-year-old kid who walked from Brooklyn to Harlem just to attend the program. Yes. There were homeless youth who, were, who knew that 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday, they had to be there. Like we literally used to beg them, listen, dudes, I have work in the morning. Like we have to go, right? And, um, it, was that, it was that intense. It, it meant so much, you know, to them. Um, and for us as well, right? So uh, we usually said it was, it was funny that those kids thought we were actually empowering them. We were learning from them. You know, I told someone, like, these are people who can stand on the corner of the street and make more money than you and I can in a year. They can do that in a week, right? So there was a lot to learn from them about their process. Right. Um, that was important for us to, um, to learn about ourselves, um, to, to um, stay true to the, the, to the mission that we have. Because it's when you run a nonprofit and you have to raise money and you don't have capital and all that, it's easy to abandon that, right? You you can easily get you know um, easily worn out. Uh, but looking at the passion, there was just no way you could abandon the work you're doing because of how much you, I personally I got from the program. Mm. Um, anyway, so in twenty fifteen, uh, so what happened was beyond the program. Many of these kids kept coming back, you know, they needed um, resources, they had questions about their businesses and how to grow them and all that. Uh, but also the other thing we did was um, in 2012, 2013, we partnered with City College, right, to bring on college students. Mm -hmm. uh, because I told people, I'm like, you know, um, the one thing that was missing from my five years of biomedical engineering was nobody teaching me how to monetize that skill set, mm. right? Every you're prepared to go into the workforce and work for the man, right? You work for someone. Um, everything around career preparation was, oh, we need to clean up your CV and you know this internship here, or you know how do you get this job here? Nobody teaches you that you can actually be the job creator. Right, um, and that was a problem for me. Um, so when we approached City College, we're like, "Listen, this is my experience here. Um, these are the benefits we see with empowering students with entrepreneurship. Um, we're already doing this in the community. It would be great to have college students as part of this." And the School of Engineering was—they were—they took it up. I mean, we're not asking them to give us money. So they give us space, they give us, you know, um, everything we practically needed besides money. Um, so we're able to combine, you know, kids in the community with college kids. And um, by the end of the program, you actually did not know the difference because um, the, the quality of, of um, work that the kids from the community were producing in many cases, was now better than some of the college students. Wow. Yeah. Um, and when they now realized that, it encouraged many of them to start to ask questions about how to go back to school. So not only did we become 
um, teachers of entrepreneurship, we now also had to assist them in getting GDs and going back to school. I have people who went through the program who work at Google today. Wow, look at that. Um, who have PhDs, you will not believe it. Who have masters, wow. who have their own businesses, yes. Um, you know, and it was just from that labor of love, right? Um, so in 2015, we decided, well, the next right thing to do was to find ways to create access to capital and more resources um, for this community. So I began to do some research um, on accelerators and um, pre-accelerators and what that looked like. Yeah. But what that research turned out, turned up rather, was um, the fact that there were many highly educated young people, not just young, people of color, um, who had brilliant ideas, um, but lacked the same access, right? Um, venture capital in the community, there was less than, uh, I think at the time it was just about 1% of venture capital uh, was going to founders, black founders, right? Which was dismal. Yeah. Um, so I began to reach out to founders who had been to, you know, the famous tech accelerators to ask them about the experiences. And those were not in themselves any better, right? So even those who were privileged enough to get into the Y Combinators or, you know, the Dream Adventures that are five of the startups still told you that one, the mentors, the investors, the ecosystem was not designed for them. So they still found themselves as outsiders in these spaces, even though it came with all of these so-called perks, right? Um, that was how Startup 52 was born. So Startup 52 was recognizing that there was a huge opportunity. Um, there was a huge need, one, our people, you know, um, what I called, what I now called untapped communities. So we graduated from invisible communities for disconnected and art rescued to untapped communities. I like that. Positive. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, we realized, okay, so there are several, there are thousands, if not millions, of founders of color who are extremely talented, um, but are not being seen or heard um, or represented um, in this spaces, in the tech ecosystem. Um, so that in itself was a problem. And the opportunity there was, well, this is an opportunity to tap into this brilliance um, and create, you know, the, the magic that could happen. Um, so in 2015, I launched Startup 52, um, which became the first diversity-focused tech accelerator. Um, definitely in New York City, um, but we also think probably across the nation. Wow. Yeah, um, and our mission pretty much graduated from real life, you know, to being able to create um, better access to resources and capital and a network for founders from what we call untapped communities. Um, and then the way we define untapped communities were now people of color, 
uh, women, um, immigrants, seniors, disabled founders, LGBTQ founders. So we usually say, if you feel like you don't belong, you belong with us, right? Uh, that was that was a tagline. Um, and um, it picked it, it kind of it picked up from there. Yeah. Um, ran three cohorts in 2018. Moved back to Nigeria to run for office, which is an entirely different story to tell, and came back. Uh, so the thing I tell people is, um, I think it was a 27, 27, between 27 and 29, uh, 2012, I was 29. Um, after going through years of, like I said, trying to define blackness for myself. Mm -hmm. Right. I tell people that was the greatest challenge I had to face in America. Right. Not homelessness, not black. It was that. It was dealing with this new reality um, and um, the tussle between those realities. Right. Um, but I tell people in, in doing that, um, what I found or the, the greatest lesson that I learned was, wait, this is not just a personal struggle, right? There is an entire global community of people who are going through the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, but even better than that, there is this entire global community of black excellence, yes. right? Um, which you personally have to define for yourself because it impacts every other person who's coming behind you, right? Um, and then all of a sudden there was that transition from being this evil boy from Nigeria to now telling people, listen, I am black first before I am African, before I am Nigerian, before I am Igbo, right? Because in the grand scheme of things, that is a global community. There are black people in South America. There are black people in Australia. There are black people all over the world. And as a race, yes, we're most um, um, vulnerable to discrimination, right? But we also have so much power. Um, I love that. Now, I want to I take another direction i thank you for, for breaking that story down i think you've given given us such a, a a clear outline of your journey and how all these dots connect um i want to take it to because i see a weaving between everything that you're doing right a desire to um help those who feel helpless in in a sense <laughs> uh, and or those that are not recognized so Obviously, you're very intelligent. You know, you're in engineering, taught mathematics, went to Wharton, went to all these different uh, Stanford and uh, and Wharton too, right? Um, all these different places, and, and and educated yourself to a very high level. But what would you say is your most dominant gift? And then the second question is, how did you find it? Woo. I would say 
And that's because you caught me off guard with that one. Yeah, that's what we do. That's what we do. I'll probably say empathy. Mm. Um, well, I just want to. I just want to say something right there. That's amazing. Out of all the the brilliance and all the things that you do and all that you know, you didn't say the ability to to code. You didn't say the ability to. Because I think young people are listening. Are like, well. Isn't my gift to code or to uh, use technology? But, but sorry, I just had to, had to underscore that for those listening. That co- although Chica has all these skills, he didn't mention that. Interesting. Yeah, um, because I think at the at, you know so what I was going to say about 2012 or 29, um, I actually wrote down what I called my life's purpose. Right, um, and I have it somewhere. I have it handy. I always have to go back to that to remind myself of the reason, the reason why I am here. I believe, right? Um, and I think underlying that purpose is empathy. Right, is recognizing that um, you. It, it's a collective responsibility to fight for those, or rather, to use your privilege to fight for those who do not have it, right? Um, and as much as we we put up and we fight against, you know, white supremacy and, you know, white privilege and all of that, um, we all have privileges, right? Um, for instance, uh, you and I can talk, you and I can hear, you and I are healthy. Um, there are people who don't have that privilege, right? How are we using that to empower them, right? Um, and your ability to recognize the privileges you have in spite of every other thing um, and try to use that to help somebody else um, is dependent on your ability to empathize, to see through some of the person's pain and to um, do what you can um, to empower them. Because it comes back. It comes well connected. We're all interconnected whether you like it or not you may say hey i may not see the benefit in my lifetime but it's legacy that you built that you're building right um there's a reason why you know so many decades after the death of martin luther king we're still talking about him right so many centuries after the death of jesus uh, you know we're still talking about them that's legacy right so the question is you can have as many gifts as you are blessed with the question is what are you doing with them to empower the next person right um and i think those gifts become more useful more effective if if you channel them for that cause that's a, that's personal that's what i believe it may not be true for everyone it may not be applicable to everyone um, but that's what drives me. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. So I, I see that also woven into everything you do, that empathetic gift. How did you find it? How, when did you recognize it? How old were you? How did you discover it? And, and how would you help say to young people, how do they can discover theirs? <clears throat> uh, so I talk about, you know, coming from this very protected family environment as a child right we're very sheltered you know um but anyone who knows nigeria understands that there are both ethnic strife and religious strife so i'm from the southeast 
the south is predominantly christian the north is predominantly muslim so we grew up believing that islam is a violent religion right they're bad people you don't da, 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 da. but i came to new york and um, new york is this part of everything right um, I met people from countries I had never heard of at City College, right, in my life. Um, and for a long time, I actually, you know, confused Dominica, the island of Dominica and Dominica Republic. It was so funny. Um, so, but what that did was it made me start to look at people who did not look like me differently. So you, we all have biases that, you know, are inherent to us for whatever reason. Um, we all have prejudices, whether we like it or not, right? You just have to be intentional in working on yours. Um, so, and anybody who knows Nigeria knows Nigeria is a very, very homophobic nation. I mean, um, um, homosexuality is criminal in Nigeria, right? Um, so you come with that perspective, right? And it's, we pick and choose, you know, whom we think we sh we're supposed to love and whom we're, su we're not supposed to. Um, but dealing with the reality of racism in America started to confront all of those biases mm. because um, I went through a phase where I had to understand that, well, I had convinced myself that it was evil, it was wrong for someone to judge me just for the color of my skin without knowing who I am, right? You can literally see me on the street and decide this person is not worth, you know, giving a benefit of doubt, right? This person does not deserve to live like I do just because of the color of my skin. And for a long time, that completely confounded everything that I was. Like, I just could not understand it. But then you hear that still small voice that says, yes, it is wrong. But who else are you doing the same thing to? Ooh. That's deep. Yes. So in that, right, you, you're, you're <clears throat> confronting this, you're, you're seeing the, the, the injustice in many ways, uh, challenging all, all the ideologies and the things you were taught back in Nigeria. But you still had to find it. Like, what? How did you find it? Right? How did you find that you're empathetic? How did you? What? What? What was there? A moment? Was there? You said 2012. You wrote it down. This is my purpose. But how did you know that? Okay, this is it. This is my gift, and this, and I'm going to use this gift to do this. I, I, you know, I don't think there was that one moment, right? I think it was, um, there was growth to it. Right. Right. It was several experiences. Um, I, of course, was stopped in first uh, or whatever, several times. Um, Can you tell us about the, the laptop situation? Because I think... Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um... So this was, I think, in 20, 2013 or so. Um, 
I had just, you know, we've talked about this before, right? I, like I said, I used to teach at City College and um, I had just left class. It was at three in the afternoon. Um, I had to go pick up a, a zip car rental from a, a parking lot. And um, I had my laptop in my hand, you know, running down um, Convent Avenue, which is City College, um, <clears throat> 141st Street, I can never forget. And by the time I got down to St. Nicholas, so I was running down this, the road between Convent and St. Nicholas on 141st Street. By the time I got down to the end of the, the corner right there in St. Nicholas and 141st, there were three cop cars and six, you know, cops jumped out of the car. And I'm like, okay, initially you don't think anything of it because, you know, you're, you're just going about your business until you realize, wait, you are the reason. Like, small me was the reason why six cops, you know, were here. Um, what's the problem? Oh, you know, they got a call that, you know, someone was making away with a stolen laptop. Okay. What does that have to do with me? Well, um, is the laptop in your hand yours? Like, what do you mean? Yes, it's mine. I just came from teaching a class and I am going to da 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 da. And you would think, I said, okay, fine. Somebody made a call, you know, that's it, right? I explained, of course, if someone made a call, you, you as a cop, law enforcement, is your responsibility to, you know, respond to that. But, as a citizen, well, I'm not even a citizen, actually, you know, as a human being who says this is not the case, right? I've explained, um, it was that benefit of doubt I was talking about. No, I had to show my faculty ID and literally had to open the laptop to put my password in before I was allowed to leave. Um, and, you know, just talking about it, it seems so whatever, but in the moment, the only thing that went through my mind was I could be shot here. Wow. Right. Um, and I think this was right after Trayvon, Trayvon Martin. Um, and I stood there, like I, I stood frozen right there in the middle of the street after they had left, just thinking. And in that moment, it dawned on me, and like, being African does not mean anything to these people. All they see is a black body. So when, when you know, some of my friends who are Africans are like, why are you so passionate about the African-American experience? You're not even American. I said, listen, yes, I'm not African-American, but I'm African in America, which means I shared the same experiences that many of them do. So keeping quiet to the travails of blackness in America means sacrificing not just my own life, but posterity, those of my children and those to come. Um, if I'm not leaving this world better than it was when I was here, right? Um, so there were several moments like that. There were several instances and that and I, I wrote a piece um, after that experience called um, the, the name has changed a couple times initially was I am black Jesus right and then it became I am your Jesus right and <clears throat> the, the concept of it was literally associating 
the cross of 2000 years ago with the lynching tree of today right and how i feel like the black race has become um that un unblemished lamb you know um being led to the slaughter right you know that there has to be shed for there to be remission of sin there has to be shedding of blood um so the only way i could rationalize everything that was going on at the time was the the the, the blood of the black race is atoning for humanity's sin nice. right um and my family made me not put out that that piece because mm. they're like my father cried when i said i'm going to publish it it's like they will kill you <laughs> yeah you know because it was just so I, I i thought i'm like this does not make sense it's it's just not it just doesn't right so it was a bunch of things it was just coming to that realization that the way to leave a legacy um the way to honor um this privilege this gift called life is to ensure that the next person um can enjoy that same privilege in whatever capacity um so the question you asked me no one has ever asked me so i can't tell you oh this is the point where empathy became that but just thinking true you know um several experiences yeah. um it is just like well i think this is what it is you know? Cool. Yeah. I, know, I love that and i appreciate that because uh it, it shows in the work that you do um even even today uh, uh as recently as some of the things you've been doing to uh get people uh of color to take advantage of economic opportunities in gathering real estate uh and, and things of that nature can you tell us about that and then i want to parlay it into um this whole experience of 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 running for the president of nigeria which is is no small feat that is that is <laughs> tremendous so um yeah so tell me about the how you've taken that empathy gift and now developed it into ways of economic empowerment and and mobilizing people because what i see from from what i gathered and uh learned about you is that you have an ability to mobilize you have an ability to uh to find a problem look for the solution and mobilize people towards the solution of that problem which is a, a leadership gift as well so but yeah I'd love for you to share uh thanks um <clears throat> so i believe that the uh for the lack of a better word the fortune of the black man um will come from our ability to to collectively empower ourselves right and, and i'm trying to find the right words here and there part to me um so i i have asked myself um why more than 400 years after slavery you know the uh, condition of the black man hasn't improved that much excuse me um and this also sort of ties into why I went home to run for office, right? I think that from the physical parts of it, right, part of the problem is 
that there is no nation in the world today, no superpower, I would say, that prioritizes the welfare, the well-being of the black man. None. Um, and I believe that that responsibility lies in Africa. Nigeria, as the largest black nation in the world, as Africa's largest economy, that mantle rests on her head. But she doesn't know it or refuses to take on that responsibility. And that is why the condition and the state of the black man is the way it is today. Um, So that was definitely part of the reason why I went to run, but I'll come back to that. Now, in terms of this collective movement of black people advocating for themselves and and, um, fighting for themselves, um, I realized that as much as we talk about diversity and inclusion, there is power in exclusion that is focused on empowerment. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? So the way you have a seat at the table is if you have something to bring to the table, that becomes your leverage. Right? Um, and as much as we clamor for a seat at the table, we have not spent time, sufficient time, in building the leverage that we need to bring to the table, which was what separate but equal was doing for us until integration. So if you ask me, and this is a personal view, integration has been more detrimental to the black community here um, than separate but equal was. Because what separate but equal or segregation did was force us to create our own institutions for our own advancement. So the HBCUs, the Black Wall Street, like all of those things, right? Which today have been compromised, um, are struggling because our brightest minds have believed and bought into the hype that subjecting themselves in systems that do not want them is the best way um, to be accepted. So I was explaining this to a friend a couple of days ago. I said, we celebrate getting into the Harvards and the Whartons and the Stanfords than we do the HBCUs that paved the way for those who came before us, right? Um, We talk about, you know, the lack of access of you know black black financial institutions whether it's banks da 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 but all of our accounts are at bank of america and chase and you know wherever else those banks or whatever else you know these are institutions that have continually exploited us right the bad loans the denials of mortgages and loans Right, all of those things, these are the same institutions that have exploited our communities that we keep crawling back to. Same thing with the Ivy Leagues, right? One, when they tell you affirmative action, excuse my language, bullcrap. 
because there is a quota that says we will select a few who can come in here right um and make them feel like they are the privileged few right who all of a sudden now have access to the things that every other person in their community does not have the access to but on the flip side it's a controlled process to ensure that you and i and many other people who look like us then have access to these things that our community is actually built these ivy leagues all survive on the backs of slavery and then you walk in there you walk into a room it, it shocks me that you know someone would tell you oh, well you're an affirmative action um whatever but they call this legacy well daddy bought my way into school daddy gave a million dollars for a lab blah blah, blah. no that and it's that is the real affirmative action so you sit in a room and you look at the people there and 99% of the time you're smarter than more than 90% of the people in the class but because you're lone voice there they make you believe that you're you're just lucky to be here so you still struggle in this space to define yourself to find your voice to assimilate and in systems that keep telling you over and over and over and over again this is not for you meanwhile we have deprived our communities we've deprived our schools our best athletes go to the schools that they think will give them scholarships the best you know minds go to the ivy league schools that they think they have access to resources but our hbcus are suffering and then we turn around and say well you know they don't have the resources they don't have blah 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 you know no so until we intentionally decide to invest in our communities in our institutions in our systems um we will constantly keep clamoring and begging for a seat at the table so when you asked about the things that are being done i realized well in order for us to close the wealth gap there are a few things that we have to do on our own right um land ownership in america today is a source of wealth right um generational wealth actually so how do we get our people to come together um to build long-term legacy and when i talk about real estate investment i don't mean the 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 you know let's buy a building here that gives you a quick turnaround you know no that's good and all but no how are we as a community coming together to purchase you know uh, something substantial um that we can build on for subsequent generations can you speak to the investment that you you are mobilizing people to get into can you speak to like cuz that's a great example of what you're talking about so for the, those listening they you know they you're not talking about just flipping a house or, or buying one commercial property you're talking about buying towns you right. know, so, so if you can talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. Um so this was uh June, first week in June, I came across this article about this town in Georgia called Tombsboro that was up for sale. Um so randomly I put up a post on social media saying, "Hey, you know, this town is 1.7 million dollars if if 340 black people commit 
$1,000, right? We raised the 20% down payment for the town. If this 340 people put down $5,000 each, we raised the entire, you know, 1.7 million to buy this town. Brian, this is just a random post like I would normally do. Um, and within an hour, um, I had over 100K commitments, like people who said, hey, I'm in, right? Uh, so at that point, I knew that, that, wait, there is something here that needs to be explored. Uh, so I put up, a, I included a Google form um, on the post. Um, and in four days, we had over a million dollars in commitments, right? So I began to do diligence on the town. I reached out to the owners, um, you know, asked some questions, did everything I needed to do. I needed to do. Um, and um, a few things were troubling about the town, right? One, um, the town had been on sale since 2012, um, which in itself was a red flag. Um, there are several chemical plants around it. In fact, the majority of the residents in the town actually work at these chemical plants, um, which in itself is another red flag. Um, there's a nuclear plant 40 minutes out, which they claim is safe. I'm like, yes, it's safe until it's no longer safe. Um, you know, so there were so many things. Um, and then the fact that the open house they had, there was only black people who showed up. Like, hmm, for a town that has been on sale for eight years, right, that has just got renewed interest or publicity, um, there is something other people know that they are not telling us about this place, right? And so a few other things like, uh, okay. Um, so I, I emailed the group. I said, listen, after diligence, this is a no-go. And then I had spoken to a bunch of real estate people as well. And they say, you know what? It may actually be better to just buy land and do what you want to do. Um, so I started looking for land uh, in the South. I, I had said that I wasn't going, I wasn't going to reveal where the land was until the deal is closed um, for several reasons. Um, so I've been looking across, you know, diverse places. Um, Mississippi, which is not where this land I'm talking about is now, was an interesting place um, just because of the history and how much land, you know, black families had lost in the last 50 years, over a million acres, right? Um, so buying land there seemed like a statement, like a political statement, uh, which may still happen, but, you know, the, the focal point of what we're doing now is actually not in Mississippi, right? So right now I'm looking at about a thousand acres and the plan is um, to get as many black people as possible to collectively buy the land. Um, I mean, I think right now we have over 400 people on the list. Yeah. Uh, my plan is we buy the land, um, we put out a competition um, for development, uh, design, um, black students design the ideal city. It, it will be more than a town or village. Um, and then, you know, source as much capital as possible again from black people from around the world um, to build this city, right? So your ownership in the land um, trans becomes equity in the city. Um, and the goal is, you know, this black owned city by black people 
um, black industries from across the world. Nigeria has a couple car manufacturers now. See if they'll be willing, you know, to put a plant there, right? So how do we pool ourselves to build something for us? Amazing. Um, yeah. So I'm very excited because I think that, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred years from now, you know, subsequent generations will talk about it when we Absolutely. pull it off. So and it's amazing you think long term. Um, and, and, you know, part of the process of finding your gift, right, is you first you discover what you're able to do. But then a lot of people don't go into the next phase, which is developing that gift. You obviously spend a lot of time to develop your talents and your abilities. Um, so can you tell, tell us a little bit about the development process of what you've used to enhance your gifting and to be, make yourself a better leader. And then of course, tell us about how that leadership got you to the point of uh, running for the largest black nation in the world. So. Um, so for me, I always like to refer to my experiences because they wouldn't always be the same for everyone. Um, vulnerability, um, in, in my opinion, makes me an insatiable learner, right? Um, I like to feel, I like to learn from people who know better than I do, right? Um, and that's anyone at all, right? If you have a gift that's better than, you know, you have a strength that I can learn from, I wanna learn from you. Um, because I feel like that's the way you become better, right? Even the Bible says iron sharpens iron, right? Um, if you're iron and you are hoping that wood will sharpen you, that would be a problem, right? Um, so surround yourself with people who have, who are stronger than you in certain areas. It forces you to do your best, you know, um, to, to learn what you need to learn. Um, in a good way, right? So there's good competition, there's bad competition. Um, good competition comes from, I want to be better because if I'm better, I can do better. Bad competition comes from a place of envy and jealousy. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I think that understanding the fact that the, the work that needs to be done is so great. Um, that you don't have time to waste. You don't have time to be mediocre, right? Um, and so that pushes you, or in this case, it's me, um, to want to be better, right? How can I be effective at what I do? Right? And um, every opportunity to learn something new means that I become a better person. So what I may have known 10 years ago, I'm hoping that, I know a whole lot more today um, and can have better impact than I did 10 years ago. So yeah. Um, what was the other question? How running, right? So, so that development, take us through like, like what did you actually do to develop yourself? Uh, uh, I know you're, you read, uh, yeah. you, know, you go to conferences, speak at conferences as mm -hmm. well. Um, but but so, so a young person listening right now, or an old, older person that's like, okay, I've got this gift. I've got this gift of leadership. I've got this gift of empathy. I want to learn how I can take this to the next level. What would you 
what did you do and what would you suggest for them to to um, enhance their development? Um, first and foremost, I think introspection and intentionality are extremely important. Um, you have to be true to yourself, right? Um, I think that's actually where growth comes from. Um, you have to be true to yourself. Um, and what being true to yourself means, you look yourself in the mirror and you say, well, you're bad at this, or you're not as, um, as you know, good a person as you think you are, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and then being intentional in trying to change that. Right? So I tell people, if we spend less time judging people, right, and focus inward more, um, the world would be a better place, right? Because you, 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 you start to appreciate people for who they are. I'll give you an example. When I launched Startup 52 and defined our mission as, um, you know, creating better access to resources and capital for untapped communities. And when we defined untapped communities, people of color, you know, LGBTQ women, da 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 it was a problem for my family. They loved, loved Startup 52. But they would, um, my parents were like, well, do you have to mention LGBTQ people, right? Um, you, you, should not, you should not want them to bring the gay agenda. I'm like, what in heaven is the gay agenda? You know, I'm like, for me, what I'm trying to do is to create access, right? I don't care what people do in their bedrooms. That's your problem, right? Um, and I can't say that I'm an advocate for diversity and inclusion and then have an exclusion clause that's hypocritical. That's being exactly the same thing that I'm trying to fight, right? Um, so, yeah, I told him you can't do that. So my father's like, well, if you just remove it, just don't say the LGBT part. I'm like, Dad, trust me, you think it was easy for me to come out with this? No, it wasn't. So I said, I gave him an example. I said, um racism is bad correct he's like yes i said good so let's say you're i come from a very christian family comes up very christian family so i asked my dad to say you find yourself in the south deep south racist deep south and on a sunday you want to go to church right you come across these two churches one says one has a signpost saying blacks are welcome the other one does not where would you go first? Mm. And my dad tried to reason. He's like, well, you know, I'll check, you know, to make sure their theology. I said, no, 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 you don't have internet to check anything. You're standing right there in front of these two churches. Which would you walk into first? You would go to the one that says, Blacks welcome. You know why? Because they were intentional to recognize that you exist. That's good. Now, if you walk in there and their theology is completely different from, you know, what you believe, then yeah, you may walk out and try the other one. But the point is, because they were intentional to reach out to you, you would feel more welcome going there first. That is and that was the end of that conversation. I said, that's the same thing here, right? So it's, I'm not here to judge people. Mm -hmm. If I say that bigotry and prejudice is bad then it spans across everything that is oppressive or suppressive of people period that's good right 
um, so so it was that, and it was like I told you, recognizing that I had biases, I had prejudices that I had to deal with, that I had to tackle. And I'm not saying that I I'm void of those prejudices. No, but I am intentionally confronting them, you know, and working on them daily. Um, so that's, in my opinion, that's what it takes, right? You have to be true to yourself. You have to be able to introspect and intentionally decide to change. That's it takes good. time, but it works. Awesome, man. Awesome. That's powerful. I mean, I, 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 man, you're dropping so many gems, and I want to respect your time, too. Um, but I, uh, I, I do need to get to, the, to the, the question that a lot of people were probably asking and wondering. Uh, now knowing all these things that you've learned in your journey, what, what puts you in a position mentally to run for the president of Nigeria and, and to be the youngest, uh, presidential candidate to run for Nigeria in a country where, uh, historically this has not been allowed, you know, so this, so tell, tell, tell us about that journey. What possessed you to do that? Okay. So, um, so there were, there were a few factors. Um, I, like I said, everything I do comes from that, you know, we need to empower the black race and humanity, right? Um, so going to run for office in Nigeria was two things, right? It was, uh, one of it I have shared, but the belief that um, the, the, the fortune of the black man and its ability to improve runs through Nigeria, right? Was one. Um, but the other one was, um, you, I say this, as young Africans, we tend to complain a lot about leadership on the continent, right? Um, without, without fully engaging, without engaging in the process. Um, and, you know, we all know that politics in Nigeria, at least, is dangerous. It's very volatile. It's... Um, um, it's everything is violent, is volatile, it's corrupt, is blah blah blah, you know. And prior to going to run, I had not lived in that country for 16 years, wow. you know. I, I'm Nigerian, uh, my family's there, you know, we interact a lot. I've visited a couple times, but I just had not lived there. Um, so what happened was we we decided. Right. Um, in order for us to change the loss of Africa, we have to get involved. Right. But we also knew that it was going to be difficult to topple a system that has been there for the last half century. Right. We have the same people who fought for our independence still in power. People who spent 50, 60 years crafting and developing this system and perfecting it. Um, and that system thrives on the ability to weaponize poverty and hunger, right? Um, so the question was, we, there is absolutely no way we change this process if you don't understand the process. And the benefit for going to understand it were numerous, right? I said, one, their system comes from an analog place, right? It's from 50, 60 years ago. Um, there are several new trends that favor our generation today um, that we're not leveraging, whether it's 
big data, right? Access to big data. Um, urbanization. Um, you have more people moving into urban areas. Um, growing middle class, which means the, the dependence of poor people on politicians who give them money and food once every four years to buy their votes um, is gradually reducing, right? When you can cater, when you can take care of your family and put food on the table, um, you don't necessarily need that, you know, tiny little bag of rice to go sell your vote out, right? Um, there's technology penetration. Uh, with the internet, people are beginning to learn a lot more um understand a lot more um you have the ability to share a, a strong message you know to a wider audience um so these were several signs that work in our favor but we were not leveraged right so going in was okay in order for us to be able to craft a more comprehensive strategy that can either disrupt the system or circumvent the system you need to understand the system so that eight months journey process, I told people if I had spent 20 years trying to prepare myself for running for office in Nigeria, I could have never been as ready as what I learned from these eight months, right? Um, so yeah, so it was that. It was we need to learn this system in order to be able to change it. But on top of that was also understanding that the future of Africa depends on us. The average age in Africa today is 18, thereabout, right? Nigeria is 18.2. In places like Niger and Chad, it's 15. Which means for the next three, four decades, the people who are 15 will still be in the workforce, right? We have we we have in fact uh, i want to say we are approaching but i think we're there when technologies such as artificial intelligence will completely change the way of life for us period where the true automation um that would decimate employment um in several ways several diverse ways and for a continent that we're still struggling to even provide power to the people. How do we prepare a, a continent of 1.3 billion people for this new realities, right? Um, when you look at that and then you look at the, the aggressive um, um, influx of China, of Asia, right, on the continent, you start to wonder what future we have ahead of us if we do not at least take on um, the mantle of leadership on the continent. That's one. And then also understand that many of these leaders who are now in their 70s and their 80s and the 90s um, will all probably die out in another decade, maximum two decades, right? How are we preparing ourselves to ensure that we do not miss the opportunity to, you know, put in people who are right for the continent. Right. Um, so it, there, there were several factors. It was that, it was how do we bridge the gap between the continent and the diaspora and empowering the continent. So there were several factors that led to going to run. 
But above it all was we need to learn this process and learn it real very quickly so that we can start to change, um, you know, leadership and um, create opportunities for ourselves. And how was that experience running? Um, I'm, I'm sure you experienced a wide variety of emotions and a wide variety of challenges and, and victories and everything in between. Can you tell us, because I, what I believe that is happening, Chike, as, as you honestly led the pack, right? Uh, you know, although uh, the former president is still in office, um, you've led the pack in, in saying, Africa, we need to rise up and we need to start with the young people. So I believe you're a catalyst for the change that has been long overdue and your work was, and I don't think you feel this way at all, but uh, your work was not in vain. Your work was essential and detrimental to the progression of Africa and black people around the world. And with that, you've sparked minds, young people that have listened or heard or are gonna now hear you um, in certain ways and will spark their minds. So with that said, what 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 was that experience in carrying that weight and, and, and you know, doing this. Hmm. Uh, I would say interested, um, partly because it, it was like a yin yang kind of thing, right? On one side, it was very, very traumatic. On the other side, it was um, it was fulfilling in a way. Um, traumatic because confronting the realities of hunger and, and suffering and pain will traumatize anyone, right? Um, so yeah, we all know about our problems. We all know that there are a lot of people who are hungry, there are a lot of people who are suffering, that we have corrupt leaders. Like pr practically most Nigerians know and understand the problem. However though, confronting it face to face, talking to people to understand their own personal problems um, was a lot. Um, I went to this orphanage. I always talk about this experience because for days I cried. I went to this orphanage in Kano and uh, as young kids, oh, such a, you know, it was a hard experience even to talk about. Um, and um, just looking at these kids, like I, we, we fed them, like we bought like blankets and food and stuff. Um, and we had to feed them. And the entire, I cried throughout the entire experience to the point that, you know, the, the workers were like, hey, you know, <laughs> you're gonna make the kids start crying with you and all that stuff. Um, but, and it wasn't just the state of affairs, you know, just seeing these young kids and wondering what sort of futures these young kids would have. But at the end, there was this two-year-old girl who had latched on to me. She may have, she may be a little older than two, you know, you just never know, malnutrition and all that. But she was young. She was definitely not more than four or five. And, um, you know, I held, I, I carried her throughout. And right when we we're about to leave, you know, I was like, well, you know, I can't take you with me. And she was speaking Hausa to me, which I didn't understand. I was speaking English to her. You know, it was just, I'm like, you know, we have to go now. I can't take you. 
and some some man um, probably in his 50s i want to say in his 50s maybe even in his 60s i don't know just casually said you know um one way you can help is um you know you could just bring money to the orphanage and you can marry some of the older kids what yes and by older kids, these are possibly eight, nine, ten year olds. And that broke me, right? It broke me because one, the fact that he could say that very casually means that it's the norm there, right? So you have possibly 40, 50, 60 year old men coming to buy kids. Because that's really what it is. Um, now, think about the, the abuse that these young kids go through at the hands of even the older kids there, at the hands of possibly even the workers. And only for you to go from that into a lifetime of abuse. You know, so it that statement haunted me for months i mean after that after after the election when i came back to the us for six seven months i couldn't function like i was completely off the radar because in the moment you many of the things that happened because you're just you live every day to survive every day you're not processing stuff until after the entire process that was when all of these things started to hit to the point where I, I said, I need therapy. Like, I need therapy to talk through a bunch of stuff. Just, uh, so yeah, you know. Um, and, you know, then that's besides, of course, the political rigmarole on right. the other end. Not you even know. half of it. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> I had I I, I practically ran for president without a VP. Mm -hmm. Had a VP on paper, right? A woman from my party, so because technically the party assigns a VP to you, so that if you win, you know they have an insider. You don't just abandon them, right? She did no interview. I mean, she did not even take any pictures I was for posting about that. <laughs> Nothing. You know why? She was a mole from another party. You're kidding me. I could you not. You're kidding me. I could you not. And I couldn't say that publicly because oh, then you know, people would be like, you know, yo, my VP was a mole from another party. Wow. Yeah. A bunch to the election. Your insights with her, or did you know, like, kind of like to numb and keep things, keep things private? Dude, I, I mean, because I became, I was the face of the party technically mm -hmm. it was a new party right um so press and everything was me and i had to hold it up right if i was fighting with the party because they were also trying to exploit money from me what? i'll get to that yes oh they sent me a letter a month to the election saying they are withdrawing their support yes oh my goodness but the thing was at that point um because they had printed the ballot you, the, your name can't come off anymore. So I'm like, go to hell, guys. I mean, what support? I was the one supporting the party, not the other way around. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. 
they gave me an alternative to bring them money. Otherwise, they were going to withdraw their So I said, what support are you talking about? A lot of money. Actually, one of the executives had told my brother months before, well, that they know usually when people come from, you know, outside to run for office, that is just the front to raise money, right? So that they needed me to sign an MOU that says, whatever money I raise, I would give 60% to the party and then I keep 40%. Oh my God. Dude, I'm like, even if that's what I came to do, you think I'll give you guys 60%? Like, who do you think I am? (laughs) It was crazy. It was a lot of craziness. Okay, we found out later, mind you, the person who introduced me to the party was a pastor that had known my family from when we were young. So my father was like, hey, you know, da, 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 da. Little did we know. And then initially he was like, yeah, you know, whatever. If you want to give money to the party, you know, you have to give it to me. Like, we should send it to him so that um, he can make sure they don't embezzle all my money. And so initially we were thinking, oh, you know, pastor, upstanding guy, blah, 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 blah. Guess what? I was just his product. What? So his agreement with the party was... Any money I was bringing to the party, he owned 30% of. What? Dude. (laughs) Like, this is double-crossing and triple-crossing and backstabbing and Judas. and (laughs) Yeah, I was just a product to him, right? Um, it It was madness. It was absolute madness all around. Wow. I, wow, it sounds like we could spend a whole show just talking about everything. Yeah. Running to okay. office is an entire different, it's an entirely different show. <laughs> we can't go into all of it today. Like, <laughs> I told people, I said, I don't even think my vote for myself counted. Wow. Because on election day, my polling unit that was supposed to open at 6 a.m., so it was supposed to be 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., did not open until afternoon. So usually what they do on election day, because that's when they get to open the ballot, whatever, they take it to, you know, whatsoever politician who has enough money and they do all the whatever before they come out. It's, it was just, yes, yes, yes. That's so, so much. Like, would, so I, I, much. I know this is a crazy question. Would you run again? Um, you know, initially I, I, I used to say no. But I think I can't do it again. I think I will. Well, it depends. So the condition now is if I find someone who has the right ideology and capacity, I don't mind supporting them. So I don't have to do it again. Right? Like I said, going in was to learn about the process in order to come up with a better strategy. Right? Um, at the end of the day, what we're looking for is great leadership and governance that can move the continent forward, right? So it doesn't have to be me, uh, yeah. Wow. So would I do it again? Maybe, Okay. but it's not, it's not 100%, yeah. So I want you to picture that you're talking to a million qualified, and I know there's probably more than this, but you're, you're talking to a million qualified African leaders who would be upstanding, integrists like yourself, who, who, are, who are progressive, and technologically driven and want to take Africa to the next level. Um, and, and they're not just going for the presidential positions, but they're going for, uh, you know, 
startup, building startups like yourself and building organizations and transforming. What are what are the words that you would say to them uh, to encourage them in their journey of not only gift discovery, but just to help advance and, and take Africa to the next level? What are, what are the words you would say to them and share with them? Hmm. Um, so sometimes I feel like those are two different um, audiences, right? So those who are running startups and those who are trying to go into leadership, even though I feel like I, I usually say that the entirety of my work is at the intersection of public service and innovation. <clears throat> um, preparation is important. One, just do it, right? Um, Sometimes I think we, we spend a lot of time over-analyzing things and over-processing things um, that we miss out on great opportunities to create change, right? So, and I say that because um, the funny thing was some of the presidential candidates were like, dude, you injected ideology into our elections. Um, and at first I'm like, how? It's like, listen, you became the gold standard after you went on CNN. <laughs> because technically I was the first person candidate period to go on CNN right that was actually where I announced my candidacy but I didn't know that right I, I just I had some guy who helped me get on then I did BBC and all this other stuff um, and then after that everybody now started trying to go on CNN and international platforms to talk about what is they're doing um, just do it, right? Sometimes passion um, is a good enough driver to make you do stuff. And some people will say, well, you know, what role does preparation play? Preparation is important as well, right? Preparation helps. Um, it also helps now that there are people who have tried it, right? Um, so I, at this stage, I can easily tell you here are the things that I believe if you want to run for president in Nigeria or even for other positions, here are the things that you should focus on in terms of building capacity. Um, and that may not guarantee that you would win, but you will leave an impact. You'd have a positive impact. Um, and I learned that from engaging the process. Like I said, if I had spent the next 20 years outside of the system trying to develop the strategy, it could never, ever beat what they have right now, right? Um, so for those who are interested in, you know, running for office and blah, 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 um, I'll be happy to have a conversation, you know, with them on, you know, little bit more details of what I think or how I think they can go about it and this is not just even in Nigeria across Africa I think it's important here too. Um, run for office right um, people keep thinking that the black population yes is just 40 million here um, but many of us don't understand that 16 and under you actually have more children of color in America today than white children yeah, people don't know that. Wow. Right? 
um, which means that even in our lifetime, America possibly could become um, more of a colored nation than white. Um, and what comes with that is the responsibility of representation mm-hmm. run for offices. Yeah. Extremely important, right? Um, economically, it may be a little tougher because the systems that are in place have been designed um, to frustrate and to suppress and oppress our communities. What political power does is give you the opportunity to start to correct some of those. Um, And I wanted to mention this. I told this to someone. I said, it's ironic that in this environment of, you know, passionate um, advocacy and protests about racism and white supremacy and white privilege, right under our noses, the the greatest the greatest fraudulent transfer of wealth to white families happened Hmm. let me explain it so with the ppp loans right the whole you know loans and cares act and blah 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 um the numbers were released i think last week earlier this week or maybe last week and uh, I think 14% of those who received the loans actually um, did say what their racial composition or background was. Of the 14% that did, 1.9% of black founders got PPP loans. 83% of white founders or white businesses got PPP loans. The biggest fraud underlying that is these loans could easily, there are parameters that you could easily meet that turns them into grants that you don't have to pay back. Right. So if we extrapolate those numbers to these other 86 percent that did not identify themselves. I mean, prior to those numbers coming out, we already knew that over 95 percent of black businesses that applied for these loans were denied. Over 95 percent, over 90 percent of businesses of color were denied. Right. Um, so if these if if these loans are turning into grants, it means that our federal government just gave money to white families that in the long run will expand the wealth disparity right under our noses. Never looked at it like that. Wow. Yep. Right. Um, so it's important that we know that, you know, we're not, I hate the word minority, but as America becomes more diverse, it's important that representation happens with that. And the right representation would only happen um, if we understand the power we have 
the run for office is to take on dispositions, to demand dispositions. Uh, so for those who are here, you know, you don't have to be in Africa and just looking to run for office in Africa. Run for office is here from the lowest to the highest levels of governance. Do it. You may not win, but you learn something that can help somebody else like you win. I love that. That's, that's gold. That's gold, brother. I have one final question for you. Sure. Uh, thank you for your generosity with your time. Mm -hmm. um, the question, I owe you this. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the question is, and we ask every guest on the show, Chike, what is the difference between one's gift and one's purpose? One's gift and one's purpose. Hmm. I wish you sent me these questions before today. <laughs> Trust me, everybody has the same reaction. It, it's a question that's a very introspective question. Yeah. Um, so I, I think um, your gifts are supposed to serve your purpose, right? Your purpose is understanding who you are and your place in the world. Your gifts enable you to execute on that. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. So you use your gifts to live out your purpose. Mm. That's good. Clear makes example. Sense? Make, make okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there are there any resources we're going to have in the show notes? You know, Startup Fifty Two all the different organizations and things that you do, but are there anything you want to share with people, some initiatives or things you have going on, uh, anything you want to promote and let people know that you're doing and can get involved with? Um, they can reach you. Sure. Uh, so I'm very, I'm very accessible on social media. So it's first and last name, uh, Chike Okebu, C-H-I-K-E-U-K-A-E-G-B-U. Twitter, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, um instagram just reach out you know um i may take a little bit of time to respond just because you know um but i i do my best to respond to all of those uh, in terms of the things that i'm working on now oh before i leave um i wanted to underscore the importance of of supporting um, our institutions right and i am living by example i started an executive mba program at Howard University. Um, so I believe that, you know, it's good to talk the talk, but it's also, it's more important to walk the walk, right? Um, so intentionally start to ask yourself and think about ways that you can support black institutions, black businesses, black people, um, black talents, you know, all of that, right? Um, if we collectively start to do that, we empower communities, right? So just follow me on social media as things start to materialize. I will talk about them a little bit more. Um, and uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, TK. This is phenomenal. I know people are going to be blessed by it. Uh, uh, I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simons. Yeah. I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simon.